Hey everybody, before you get into this episode today, I just want to let you know that we do a fair amount of discussion about suicide, both being a survivor of suicide and having suicidal thoughts and ideation. I sit down with Addison Brazil. Let me just give you a quick bio for him. Addison Brazil shows up in the world as a writer, an award-winning producer, and speaker after finding himself just to the left of death three times in his formative years in response to the loss of his brother, father, and dear friend. He has worked to share his best-selling book, First Year of Grief Club, a gift from a friend who gets it, and is also the host of Grief Club, the podcast with Adam Addison Brazil. You can find the details in our show notes. I just wanted to give you the heads up that some of what you're going to hear particularly in the back end of the podcast, really does go into detail. And if that is not a good topic for you, you should skip this episode and find us next week. Thanks so much. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am delighted to have the pleasure today to be sitting down for the second time with Addison Brazil. Addison, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm excited to see where it goes, where you get you get to be the host and I'm in the host. I know, right? Well, what Addison is referring to and I've mentioned is that I was on his podcast a couple of weeks ago. What Addison might not know, which I don't think I told you, is you're the only person that I have already sort of had a relationship with on the internet I'd already been following you, already been interested in your work, already, you know, had you popping up and a mutual friend said, oh, I have a friend in the grief space. You should meet him. And then she put us together and I was like, wait a second, you were on my short list of people I was hoping to get on my podcast anyway. So that was a complete delight and a first. You're, you're the grief celebrity that I hadn't yet figured out a way to say hello to. And our friend Shelly Paxton was like, hey, you two should meet each other. So. I love the universe for that. Yeah, I'm so glad she did. And it's really nice to hear that because sometimes in the grief world, you don't know if all this stuff you're putting out there, if it's reaching people and, and affecting people. So that's, that's really kind of you to share. And I'm very glad to be here. Well, I know a bit about your story, like I said, because I've been following you for a while, but I want to ask you the question I ask all of my guests, which is what brings you into the world of grief and loss. And you and I were just joking off mic that like you might just start talking and not stop for the whole episode. But will you just tell us, like, how do you find yourself in this space? Yeah, absolutely. Um, not willingly is the way that I will start with. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Throw the humor in to, to ease into it, right? Um, well, yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, had a very normal, what you would consider, you know, normal, privileged, wonderful upbringing. And then at a certain point, in my upbringing, suddenly we were talking about my brother and, and having an inoperable brain tumor. And I was, you know, 16 years old and, and like it was words and I understood what the words meant. And I watched a lot of Grey's Anatomy and it just didn't mm-hmm. feel real. Um, you know, it felt, it felt very odd. And so I would say that that moment, the first time that that was said, you know, Austin was my brother's name. Austin has a brain tumor and it's inoperable, um, is probably where grief opened the door for me in my life. Um, And I wouldn't call it that right away. I wouldn't recognize it right away. But in a way, it was sort of this 
grief made its entrance and also my loss of innocence started um, from that moment. And uh, it was very polarizing to, you know, I, I went to high school in the city. I was sort of living the dream. I had auditioned to be at this arts high school that you could only go to if you had a major. And so I was like in this amazing environment and sort of, you know, not many people are like taking the, the train and going into the city that early and, you know, living the dream kind of thing. And, and my brother was going to the local high school and alternating between radiation and chemo and, you know, all the things that come with the challenging battle of, of that type of, of terminal illness. Um, so long story short, we, there was a lot of grief up and down long before he finally succumbed and, and passed, unfortunately, in 2018 to his brain tumor. But it really was a roller coaster and sort of my first, I guess, university course in grief and, and sort of how secular it can be and the ups and downs and anticipatory, anticipatory grief and how that doesn't really prepare you for anything, but it's absolutely necessary. And just, you know, this, this really odd thing where you know, something so out of order is happening, something that you decided at some point could never happen because that's not the way the world works. And that's how I was operating. And there was this active living sickness, you know, attacking my brother and at the same time attacking everything I believed about how the world works and how it should work and spirituality or religion at the time I was brought up Catholic, you know, uh, just everything, you know, so... So looking back, there was a lot of grief through those four years and then ultimately a grief that, you know, is, you know, as I say, brought me into grief club. And and I know that I'm here for life in a way. I know that there's always going to be something to honor around this, you know, beautiful, awesome dude that was my brother and, you know, best friend, just two years younger and um, just a light in every room he walked into. Also a little bit of a, you know, shit disturber in every room he walked into, you could say that, Um, you know, but that was his unapologetic energy. And, and it really, really left a hole in my heart, in my life, uh, a gap for us all uh, in our family, of course, and just everybody who knew him. Um, So it was very interesting, for sure. And um, I, I, from that grief process, I like to say, I sort of went into my my A type in response. I started mm-hmm. a profit sort of at the end of his life with him and that would carry on once he passed that would support families and other children with brain tumors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went hardcore into sort of the give back mode. How much good can I pump into the world? I think really innocently, I thought, you know, maybe one last shot. If I, if I try to save everybody else, we'll get the Hail Mary. Um, so with another big grief, you know, being 19 and going, yeah, sorry, buddy. It was a really cool, cool try that you made there, but that's just not what we can do with this, you know? Um, and then at the time I was, I was dancing on scholarship in Pittsburgh. So I had already finished my first year of college and shortly after he passed, I was meant to take the whole semester off. And I realized right away that, you know, luckily one thing in that initial grief process was, you know, there's usually this never-ending look for sort of purpose um, to fill the hole and I knew what my purpose was and I knew what my passion was and I wanted to get back to it as soon as possible so I did everything I could to sort of be back in school and be allowed to sort of 
jump back in and also pass after missing that amount of time and yeah. a little bit of struggle and I had to fight for it but um you know they brought me back and um before I knew it I was just dancing 14 hours a day wow you know again and just like the you know the pain and, and the the bleeding toes and like and just very non-verbal it was very interesting to process such an intense grief in a program where generally you aren't even allowed to speak for that many hours a day because you know you have, I don't know how many dancers there are out there, but at that level, it's it's quite militant. You don't speak during class or in, you know, there's performance classes. And um, so it's just these sort of, a lot of, for the first time in my life, just, you know, eye contact from my roommates and best friends and the check-ins weren't as verbal as you would think. And these things weren't getting spoken. And, you know, eventually it did end, I think about two months after with me in the foyer of this brand new beautiful building that they had built screaming and crying surrounded just surrounded by other young people that just created this wall around me, literally not knowing what to do. And just all I can remember hearing is him, call his mom, call his mom, like call his mom, you know, like it's happening. It's happening. He's just realized like, you know, and it, for me, it was months later where I, and I hit the deck. I, what do you like all of a sudden it was like this thought like he's not coming back and I and it was like I just found out and nobody understood they had all been to the funeral they had all you know been to all the things and and I was just bawling my eyes out and my mom drove there within four hours like the super mother that she is and and you know and I went oh damn this is a beast this yeah. is you don't just go back and and sort of platitude your way through this um you know the condolences and the lasagnas are a beautiful little flotation device but you've only just jumped off the titanic into the ocean you still need to get to shore or find another ship or you know like true security and safety and i think i thought like just that first step was you know maybe i would i would kind of be able to get away with the the big hard journey um that was ahead of me I know that you know that I have a sort of trifecta of intense grief in my 20s. Yeah. And I can be more economical with, with the other two, but I'm going to do something I rarely do and pause from everything I just said and just just allow whatever um, you're, you're thinking to come up. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm grateful for the pause, right? Because it's a lot. The compound, the compound loss that you have is a lot just to be someone who cares about you on the receiving end to know about. But what I'm thinking about when you're describing, you know, I, I often talk to people about what's the, what's the verb? How do you grieve? How do you get the energy that sort of comes to like land inside your system? How do you get it out? How do you move it through? How do you grow the muscles to bear it? Whatever. And one thing that you have just described like really beautifully is that you don't always know when it lands, except when it lands. We have these notions of what grief looks like and what we have to do and how to show up and be a soldier and what, and some of that's developmental. Like I'm really thinking about what does it mean to be age 16 to 20 and be, you know, bearing these things, right? Like you've already identified yourself as different from your peers by going to an art school and essentially declaring your intention to become a super high level dancer. And in fact, doing that, right? Like lots of people go to art school, they're trying to do it. 
but you, but you get that done. Mm -hmm. So that sort of makes you different and other, not other othered, but just different. And then you have this other experience that most 16 year olds don't have, which is inside your home is this tremendous emotional experience that no one has trained for. No one knows how to do. No one can teach you how to do it. And it's not just happening to you. It's happening to your brother. It's happening to your family. So just the, like, to me, it just feels like the swirl of, you know, like how how do you take care of yourself in a hurricane? Mm. I don't know. So that description, that really vivid description of you falling the fuck apart. First of all, that resonates with me because I have, I have one of those in my memoir chapter. And also I think, yeah, we don't always know what grief feels like Mm -hmm. until it tells us what it's going to feel like. We think we're in it, but sometimes it doesn't land until later. And I've heard that story a number of times from people, which is like, it didn't land at the funeral. You know, I was sad and I was whatever, but like that moment where you're like, I I have to learn how to live without my brother. Mm. He's not coming back. This isn't a temporary thing. Yeah. That's definitely something that, and I will say, you know, to cushion, if you've had that moment or haven't had that moment yet, and you're listening to this, you know, I, I love the word swirl and I use it in my, in my book, in the success of grief, because I think, you know, we've been, we've digested, we haven't really even been taught, but we've digested the stages of grief, which we know are, are secular and they don't really happen in stages. And it's, you know, it's, it's a beautiful set of work and ideas, but you know, it, it's really right. Yeah. different experientially. And I've had this moment many times where I hit the deck again. Yes. Like I yeah. again. And I just, so, so it's also like, I don't, you know, it's like, oh, good. It's over. If you're listening to this, oh, I had that moment there. And I know this because, you know, it's interesting that you bring up, you know, my, my work in the men's mental health space when running the startup, one of the, the things that I just couldn't believe I learned at probably 30 years old was that the male brain specifically is not yeah. even fully formed till 26. That's right. So as we'll get into, I'm sure there's still another whole traumatic loss that happens to me before I'm 26. So all of this is also happening. Well, I'm just trying to literally figure out how to be a human on earth, you know, with all the normal stuff as well. So I can only with perspective, look back and go, what was I doing? And it's like kind of almost humorous to be like, what was I doing? I was just like, literally trying to like live my life. Right. Yeah. And so yeah, it, it's interesting. And, and I, with all the losses I've had, there's been these moments and I've, I, you know, I can hear my mom's voice going, I know, honey, but I just want to remind you, like, you've called me like this before and said, it's like, I just found out why isn't everybody like, it just feels like everybody should be going to a funeral and everybody's fine. And I just found out. And it's like, they're like, yeah, this happened two years ago or four years ago or eight years ago. And you're having these moments where the floor drops out and you're like, okay, but it just got really, really real right now. And there's no ritual. There's no gathering. There's no community. And those are the moments where I love what you and I have tried to put out in the world and do because the only things that exist and there weren't podcasts 14 years ago either. That's right. Or or even really that many books you were, you were referred to the stages of grief. That's right. (laughs) You know, so, so it's really wonderful that hopefully that, you know, an episode like this can be a ritual for when 
the moment drops out, that that is completely normal and you're in the swirl, you're in the secular moment of it. And there's really, there's nothing you can fix or, you know, should fix in that moment. There's just a lot to honor, you know. A, a few a few weeks ago. So it's I'm in DC and it's, you know, we're headed into spring and DC spring is about eight minutes long. It get it goes from being wet and cold to really hot pretty fast. And what that means for our vegetation is like it can be snowing and you have tulips because it was warm the day before. And I grew up in New England, so that wasn't the case. So when I came down to D.C., I sort of expected like the season to be slow coming out of the earth after the snow melts. But that's not what happens here. What happens here is you I mean, it happened this morning. I walked out and was like, look at that pink flower. It wasn't there yesterday because yesterday was really warm. I think of grief the same, which is like it flowers in this surprise. Like, yeah, you know what? There are some flowers that come up every year exactly where you planted them. And those are the things like the anniversaries, right? Like birthdays and the days that they're not here for. We can kind of see those on the calendar and do some, but then there are these ones and my friends at Good Morning Podcast call them grief bombs. And I really like that. Just, you know, to me, they're like these blooms that like you walk outside and you're like, where the hell did that come from? And it's fresh and it came from somewhere and maybe that seed spread, but the notion is not, it shouldn't be there. It just is there. It grew there. And it can. And so that phrase of like fresh grief where you're feeling it, like it's happening right now. I love that you're explaining to people like, oh no, that happens forever. And I don't mean it happens perpetually forever. And I don't mean that you don't learn to navigate your grief because you do, but people can grieve the loss of their brother 20 years later in a, in a bout of fresh tears. And it's not because they don't know that their brother died 20 years ago. It's because this flower bloomed overnight where you are yearning for him now mm-hmm. in a way that is connected to the present moment. And I just love that you've given our listeners a description of that because, again, we don't talk enough about this. We don't tell the truth about it when we talk about it, which is so irritating. And, you know, people feel like they're nuts when they are experiencing this. And if, you know, if we can just say to folks like, look, that's part of the way that grief works. It's not stages. It's not, you know. You're going to feel it. And it might mean you call your mom and she's like, we've done this before. You're going to not don't do it, but you're going to live through it. It's going to keep happening. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. It resonates so much. And it reminds me a lot of, I had two really weird encounters last year, which now probably seem more purposeful with spiders. Um, And like, I don't love it, but (laughs) terrified but maybe I should after these experiences but to be fair one I was in Australia and there was a huntsman the size of my hand behind my pillow um and then again in in London with one the size of my hand in my room at night and it's very similar to that with grief where we all know spiders exist we all Mm -hmm. understand conceptually that what spiders are we understand that we're bigger than them they rarely kill people they rarely hurt people whatever but when you are in your safe space or what you perceive as your safe space, like your bed or your bedroom, and there is suddenly a spider, big or very large, in yeah. space, think about the way you behave when that happens and whatever right. spider is for you, where like I'm acting like a child, like it's That's like right. 
intensely emotional would be appropriate. Yeah. And terrified. And like, well, you know, and, and then even once the spider's gone, unable to sleep, is there something crawling on me? Like it, it has that, that same sort of thing where we know it's there. We know they exist. We know we're going to interact with our grief eventually, but until there's a spider on your pillow, you don't know what's going to come up and how you're going to react and how devastating it's going to be. And we all have that moment, just like with spiders and grief where like, you know, a vulnerability hangover, a grief hangover, where it was like, wow, that feels silly now, but it wasn't because in that moment yeah. it was there in right. the place that you needed to be safe. And for whatever reason brought out every fear in you, you know? So it, it's relating it to stuff like that does kind of help me a little bit to go like, yeah, well, a spider showed up, you know, a, a really big one, you know, right where I was sleeping, you know, and, and sometimes spiders show up, you know, and it's like, right. Sometimes it's like in life, you're in a situation where like, you know, if you were being interviewed and a spider was crawling up my leg right now, that juxtaposition, that intention and of trying to keep going when something's clearly like, you know, creeping up, it's, it's very similar to me for when grief, oh, oh, like I'll just be talking and then it's like, oh no, oh no, oh no. And it's the same sensation of something crawling up your leg, but it's coming through my visceral body and like, Oh, oh, okay. I'm not advocate Addison right now. I'm going to, I got to stop. I got to stop and, and deal with this, but that's such a great analogy because again, if there was a little spider that was, you know, walking across the table, like we might have some activation from it, but it's not the same as a spider, the size of your hand. And yeah, that, I mean, what I, what I'm thinking about right now is when I went to Australia, my not yet husband gave me a book and was like, Oh, read this book. And I read it. And what it told me was like the seven deadliest animals, insects and reptiles all lived in Australia. Yeah. So the whole time I was there, I was like, is that one of the ones that's going to kill me? Am I going to die from that one? A list of a hundred things that can kill yeah. you. They're everywhere. Yeah. Good luck. Addison, tell us a little bit more about, take, take us through the timeline, if you can, of sort of where we go after, after Austin's death. Yeah. So what really happens, um, I, you know, after my brother passed, I graduated and I went on to perform and, and work and I ended up traveling all over the world um, performing and it, it really was amazing. And then I ended up coming back home to Canada after a contract where I was, I was going all around Southeast Asia. And um, I came home and I had actually, you know, had a, a pause with my father at the time. Um, it's interesting when a child dies, everybody's eyes are on the mother. Yeah, at least for exactly us. Right. That, that was the concern, you know, how would the mother ever survive? And it's very interesting looking back because there was a family meeting about three months before my brother died at the hospital. And it was probably one of the most intense movie-like moments of my life. It was the entire immediate family, grandparents, I think my uncle, you know, there was, we were all there and we were a blended family. Both parents had remarried after divorcing when we were very young. A lot, a lot of grown-ups in the room. A lot of grown-ups in the room. And, you know, but everybody sort of did return to a childlike state when this, when they basically had to deliver the news that, you know, Austin's done fighting. There's nothing more we can do. The palliative word was used, you know, it was like time to make him comfortable, you know? And, and I do remember my dad saying that day, like, just nope, nope, nope. Like to the top doctors in the world, like sick kids has like the best people in the world. And he's going, nope, 
no, my son cannot die because I will die. And it's so odd because even him verbalizing that at that time, still, I just remember always thinking, how are we ever going to get mom out of the bed the next day? Yeah. Day. Um, and um, it was interesting. My, my mother had three other children and like, of course, the most intense grief there can be, but wildly resilient, mm-hmm. wildly maternal Mm-hmm. and taking care of the rest of us you know and and being there in every way and just to this day I'm still I'm still in awe of both of my parents they were both also quite young when they became parents all mm-hmm. and for them quite young too I mean my mom had my older sister only at 18 so you know they were in I feel like a child at 33 right now so I right right I know how they felt during all of this um so long story short, my father and I reconnected after his second marriage ended and we became very, very close. Um, and I kind of became one of his only points of contact. It felt like he learned to text and it never stopped. And, you know, like we were finally just having this, this little bit of space that we never had mm-hmm. uh, for whatever reason. And um, we were always close, very loving all the things, but it just allowed um, this little bit of space and, um this magical time where I was an adult with him as an adult for the first time when we were both trying to figure it out you know he was in his middle and um I was in a similar space where I was like okay what do I what am I doing here um and to be honest there was a shift and I knew something was off but it but I the only reference I had was movies and tv shows um and it just I thought that if somebody was really unwell mentally, that it would take a lot of time. And it's important for people to understand that many people saw my dad and Robin Williams hadn't passed yet at this time, but much like a Robin Williams, my dad was the life of the party. He was the most fun. He, you know, he was up in the morning building someone's deck, trading stocks. Like, I mean, he was just, he was that guy. Like he, you know, was Uncle Henry, like, you know, everybody just, you know, loved having him around, dancing till the end of every party, like that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, there's there's no easy way to do this. And I'm obviously feeling a little bit avoidant today to get to the point, but the, the unfortunate and heartbreaking point is that um, I ended up finding my dad after his suicide um, in July of 2012. So about four years after my, um, my brother had passed. And, um, yeah, I, mm-hmm. it, it came with the worst kind of post-traumatic that you would expect. Um, I was with my uncle the day that it happened. However, I, it was the perfect example of fight and flight. My uncle sort of retreated once we realized what we were dealing with and I went to, and yeah. so I stayed with my dad and once they realize that there's nothing they can do they don't exactly come quickly yeah so so it was a very traumatizing whatever it was 37 minutes before someone like physically removed me because I was I was still sure there was something that could be done and you know trying to understand and um and and that that really bled into obviously my life. I, I, 
I, I struggled immensely with PTSD and it was years before I could even ever get to a son losing a father. Like it was just so surrounded around the actual trauma. I would have very intense flashbacks. I, I struggled immensely. I, I essentially inherited my father's divorce in a way, a very complicated estate that I was left to deal with. Um, and it just was a very, very tangled web that, that there was a lot of true health concerns before I could even ever get to, yeah. you know, really, really dealing with it. And, and, and it sort of was this very interesting time in my life where I knew I wanted to get back to California. So I started the process while doing this healing. I mean, I was literally spending hours sitting on my hands and just counting because I just didn't trust. I didn't want to be here. I, I just, I didn't want to be in a world where you're 24 years old and half your family's gone. I just didn't want to, it just didn't make sense to me. I just couldn't make sense of it. Um, and my father's death was the death of God for me for a long time. I, there was no way you know, that something was looking out for me, it felt like in that way. And so here I am like sort of sitting on my hands, but then working with lawyers to get my extraordinary artist visa and sort of cataloging and bringing all my work together as an artist to prove that I'm extraordinary. Well, on the other hand, like never feeling less extraordinary in my entire life. So it was this very odd and intense contrast. Um, and I just, I lovingly, I ended up getting the visa and I ended up after a year and a half going out into the world and whether it was California or beyond, you know, it was this sort of Achilles heel that was there and it just peppered everything, every part of my life. I had no idea, but every relationship, there was no chance for anything to not live outside of that unhealed trauma and what had happened. And, and I went into this true fixing mode yeah. and I went out in the world, like, I can fix this. I did all the retreats. I hired every type of doctor. I did EDMR, like, you know, all the things, the yoga, the, all the things. And at that time, wellness was starting to boom as well as sort of more of a trend than, than, you know, necessarily focusing on one healing modality. And, and I'm going to be honest, I, you know, I, throughout that time, you know, I, I checked myself in a couple of times, like there were some real, real lows, you know, and, and, the one thing that I honestly can say that got me through is that I have a mother and sisters and then an intense extended support system that I could be honest with at yeah. the low moments. And, um, but it was so in contrast with like this new life in California. And once again, much like high school where I'm living my dream quote unquote, but it's got this weight to it. It's got this texture and it's invisible. And everybody just keeps telling me at the time how good I look and how attractive I am. And I, I hate to say it like that because it sounds like pretty people problems, but it was like, it just was this very odd thing of, you it's know. It's a Congress, right? It's they're saying the thing that they're saying, you look great. And you're like, really? Cause I feel fucking yeah. crazy. Like exactly. I, I can't even hold on to the edge of the world. I feel wilted. I, yeah, I felt, I, 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 I look back at pictures now and I just go, you had no idea. Like you had no idea because like, I'm starting to deal with like, you know, the beginning of my own grief, like gray hair showing up and like your, my face just starts to look different and all these things. And I'm sort of looking back to that time and going like, like, 
you know, vanity kind of came down from my dad and the family a little bit, but like I had, like, I was just like, dude, you were so hurt inside. You, you, you know, you weren't aware what they were seeing. And it was a nice thing for, you know, people just, they compliment what they can, you know, and they're trying to help. But right. when you're trying to say to people, like, I'm really struggling and they're going, but you look so good. Yeah. It, it's just a very interesting and odd thing. And I take full agency and responsibility. I moved to Hollywood and I was acting and modeling and in probably the worst environment possible for that complaint. However, it was just a truth of, of my existence at the time. So long story short, I, I, I did go out into the world and, and I, I really believed I, I fixed it. There was this moment uh, in March, 2018, February, 2018, where people just like their heads were turning and like their ears were turning on and they're like oh my god like you're you're back like it's been great but like we didn't think that like you would come back you know the laugh is really your laugh the like you know you're really here again and it was hard to hear that like so I was like you just haven't been telling me that you know that there was just this other version now. And, and that's the way it was that I want to pause because I want to, I, I, that I really relate to when people are suddenly sort of like, wow, you're like, here you are now I see you. Oh, you know, I couldn't say this to you before. And the phrase I always think about my friend Rachel uses is like a complicit. It's like a compliment and an insult, but it, it hurts because you're like, oh, I knew, I knew that I was really raw or like, maybe I didn't even totally understand how I was being depicted in the outside world. And now you're saying like, oh, thank God. But right. like, really, I'm kind of only, you know, the fifth rung of the slide. I'm not, I'm not on the easy part. Totally. Mm -hmm. I'm just laughing in a way that makes sense. Oh well, yeah. The find the funny part of my brain is going, oh, but I look so good. <laughs> you know like hey don't you but I looked good so it's you looked fine. really good it was fine but it, it really also like one thing that I want to highlight is that I I was surrounded by like such amazing people on earth like sometimes I truly feel like I made a weird deal at some point like it's going to be really hard but you're going to have the most beautiful people on earth supporting you and by your side on this thing um you know as friends and family and and but also my friends at the time, which were like so beautiful looking back now, they chose to grieve a brother with me. They chose to grieve the worst thing that can happen to your father with me. And they were also all learning and they were also all terrified by it, but they couldn't express it to me because they were trying to support me. And now, of course, the conversation would be completely different after, you know, all I know now in the world. But right there was this tension of like, how do we support him, but make sure like that doesn't happen to me because like that, that, that shouldn't happen. And so there's this thing of, of where people are constantly going, like that just shouldn't have happened. And they're saying that they're doing what I used to do, which is my own programming being like, that doesn't happen in this world, you know? Um, and it's, it's beautiful and it's honest. And it's just like, we were all growing up and nobody had to, nobody had to get on the van with me. They could have been like, that's a scary van. You're the only one who has a hundred percent. And it's so important to say that because really good people sometimes can't get on the van yeah. for their own reasons, but also because we don't educate them and there aren't other resources. 
I want to give this example because I think it's really beautiful. I had the author Colin Campbell on the um, podcast a while back with his new book, and he has a one-man show that's in LA and New York. It's just been extended in New York. Mm -hmm. And I was in New York for a couple of days on a book thing, and my sister-in-law was telling me one of her dear friends lost a son to cancer. And she said, we get together once a month and and we do something that's grief-related. And I was like, oh, that's so nice. She comes with you? And she was like, no, not usually. It's just her friends who do it so that like we can understand her better. And I, I mean, she wasn't even talking about me and I was at the table and we were having Mexican food and I got really teary. Mm -hmm. I was like, wow, that is such a innovative and thoughtful way. Can you imagine like your friends are at a play about grief because they want to be on your bus, Mm -hmm. even though your bus is really hard and uncomfortable and no one's taught them how to do it. Like, I just thought that was so loving and beautiful and, and sort of mimic some of what we've said, you and I have said, which is like, that's what the books are for. The books are not just for the grievers. It's for the people who are trying to understand what it means to grieve. I just think, you know, and the podcasts and the efforts and the telling of the truths is not you know, a narcissistic, oh, you look so good story. It's a, people need to know these stories. People need to understand your friend isn't just being like a little, you know, stubborn or as is sometimes lobbed at people, like enjoying their grief and all the attention it gets them. You know, it, it really is so destabilizing they don't know their way forward and the supports, they have to learn that. And the support system has to learn. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just, what, what a lovely thing to say about your friends and like, your family. I'm like, and I will say my friends, like, I think we're unlocking the truth of my grief was like, I don't really cry about sad things, but when I hear about them going to that play, like when people are genuinely kind and genuinely like that rocks me. To my heart. me. I know it's, in all of the dark moments of all the things that I'm able to be sort of eloquent about now, there was, you know, really dark moments where one person hadn't just been kind when they didn't have to. And I will say about getting on that grief van, like my friends and family, when the van showed up, they got in, they would have liked to go home and get, you know, water and gear. And like, we were going on a safari and they just got, you know, and so I just, it's, it is my wealth is my connections to other people and all of this. And it is the only reason I am here and able to speak to you today. And just like stories like that, where, and just invisible things that I have found out years later. And I, yeah. I love my memoir to be more riddled with this, even though it would be a grief book, but like where I didn't even know in the background, the things that people were doing yeah. to make sure that I got to be here today. Like it is just, I know your magic and it, it it just you know it is truly beautiful and and so sometimes you know in grief we can be sort of measuring because it's easier to focus on other people's actions and how people are showing up and whatever but there's years later where you also like realize there was like a, a it was a double decker van and there were all these other people on the van and you didn't even know they were on the van and the people that were on the van were like texting below the seat and making sure when you got to the next location that you were gonna like without with so much grace and integrity and just, I, in retrospect, have learned so much about what matters to me in life by the way that people treated me through what's probably a heartbreaking story to be listening to today. So I hope that's sort of, I always like to sprinkle that contrast in of that sort of awe and hope and like, 
like I have lived in deep, deep contrast as an adult. I mean, this started when I was 16 and I'm only 33 now. I've never not lived in in sort of this grief or or dealing with this, but I have to say I'm most often moved by how intensely that contrast exists in my life. I mean, just like the most beautiful moments and and just the deepest laughter, you know, and that's yeah. Oh yeah. What it's all about. It does open that up. Um so yeah, so I thought I fixed it. You know, I thought, hey, you can fix it. And if I had walked into sort of a branding office at that moment and talked to a publisher, I would have become one of those horrible people that's incredibly marketable with 10 steps to fix your grief. And I probably would have, you know, been quite successful, actually. You know, I had the, you know, there wasn't a young guy who looked so good anyway. I was just going to say that your face would have been on the cover and it would have sold millions. You would have been right on Oprah. And I was like, I got this, I'm good. And I was sort of making all these decisions I didn't know at the time, like like based on the fact that I could just, you know, fix this and tuck it away. And what I cannot carry the weight of my father and my brother not being here and the trauma that resulted. And, and we talked about this a little bit off air, but keep in mind, I'm a 16 to 28 year old male who's also dealing with all the what I call in my book micro grief which is not because they're smaller or they don't matter but sometimes we need to take a microscope and look at them Mm -hmm. those are losses and it's the loss of anything meaningful you then are dealing with the energy of grief and so I had all of those as well heartbreak all of that you know wanting a job not getting a job I mean I was in entertainment every time I every time I auditioned I was grieving you know so So it was all of that, you know, but I was like, I got it. And, you know, in a sense, I, I went out with a friend to, to celebrate, you know, I was, I was, I don't know, I, looking back a little bit cocky, like I just was like, I'm good. No, not. I've I been through it. I've come out the other side better. I have meaning. Yeah. Took the tools and I said, I use the tools and now put the tools away. Don't even keep them in the garage, you know, like, yeah. or, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, and yeah, unfortunately, God, everybody listening is like, oh God, what now? Um, but unfortunately on on the way home um, from one of these nights with a dear friend that I had known since my first year of college. So she was a friend in LA, a beautiful, amazing person that I had this amazing sort of journey with where she knew me before my brother passed, but then we both moved from Pittsburgh to Los Angeles. So we were that deep check-in friend where it was a little, it wasn't like every weekend, but like, the coffee dates and the dinner were like, how yeah. are we really? Like we knew everything about the inside outs of each other's families. And, you know, we talked about mental health and what really made us tick. And like, you know, that's, it's not easy to find in LA. It takes a long time to cultivate and you have to be very purposeful. In yeah. and yeah, not because people are awful, but also because LA is incredibly transient. You come here for a purpose and if you don't do it, you leave. You lose that's a right. lot of people all the time. So that's very important, that relationship, especially to me at that time. And um, uh, yeah, unfortunately, on the way home, we were in a very fatal accident and um, she did not survive. Um, I was knocked unconscious um, and then essentially brought to the hospital and um, I I was unable to walk. Uh, I had a brain injury and for the first time in my life, I was set up to start a traumatic grief process again, but one that came with 
being bedridden and being in excruciating pain 98% of the day and night. Um, And at that point, I say this all the time, was really the first time where I where I felt like, okay, we're trying to run windows on Mac. There's no way the operating system, there's just no way. And it was the first time that viscerally I felt like this anger and hurt for everyone who knew and loved me. Like that is enough. Like you felt it. And it was almost like everyone, I was still surrounded, but there was just a little bit of space around it because it was almost just too scary in a way, you know, um, and it was such an odd and isolating experience because everyone around me's job was to make sure I survived, you know, but then I'm grieving a loss. I, I can't go to a funeral. I can't do any of the rituals, nothing, because I'm hospitalized. So there's this whole process of everyone is just trying to help me. But then on the back end, I'm intensely grieving one of the most beautiful people I've ever known. And because we had one of those special relationships where we were check-in friends, she wasn't in my immediate circles. So the people surrounding me, she didn't know my family well. No one, a lot of the people that were around me, except for a few that I had known my whole life since college, like were, were in the experience of that grief. My healing and my... I wouldn't even call it healing at that point. My recovery and my care was very community driven. Um, And insanely, I mean, like the troops showed up like insanely. Again, I would not be here today without that type of support. But it was much like my father's death in the sense that there was an immediate understanding that I needed to keep myself alive. I needed to heal. I needed to learn to walk. I needed to do all that. And then right when I got through all of that excruciating pain would only be the time where I'd go, oh no, my friend, my friend, my friend, you know, oh no, oh no, no. And I'm still, that part five years later, being back in Los Angeles right now, that still exists for me. That is still like driving by her home or like places we used to go or someone will order a certain type of coffee or be like, you know, I was, recently taken to a restaurant and we were sitting in the restaurant and I'm having this like weird feeling and I'm like what is going on like what like I have this like weird weird feeling and then suddenly you're like this is the last place that we had dinner oh my god you know and you're just like and I you know so that process was the true test of my life It, it gets to a moment we can speed through, it gets to a moment in the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual recovery where I, I talk to my doctors, I let them know that I'm assessing my quality of life. I've researched everything one can about suicide and trying to understand you know, my father. I'm, I've had all this mental health education, that's what I inherited from my father. And I feel like it's game seven and, and we're not up. And I have to have conversations with, you know, my, my team at the time, my therapists and at the time and say, you know, if something happens, can you please explain to my mother and my sisters that I, that I really, really tried, but I just, I can't do this. It just, it hurt. It physically hurts all the time. It felt like a fire alarm was going off. Imagine you're a fire alarm in your house going off 
99% of your life. Like it just never stopped. And it just became very logical. Well, there's one way to turn it off. And you actually know a lot about it. And, yeah. and there's a little bit of, if it was good enough for my dad, it's good enough for me. I'm not going to judge him. You know, this, this happens, you know, the same way you wouldn't be like, if you had a heart attack, feel shame about it, but, you know, the same thing. So it was weird. My mental health education started to sort of allow me to accept that, you know, that this might not be what happened. And so for the first time in my life, I was like, as you can imagine, a, a sort of a co-parent and an A-type and, you know, someone who always, you know, helped my parents raise me in a way I, um, I sort of dropped everything and I, I, I agreed to go to where my mother was living in the East coast of Canada on the ocean. And I let her babysit me and I, I agreed to try medicine for the first time and, and different other modalities, but it was very much, I'm coming home. It might be to say goodbye. Um, I hope it's not, but I'm, I'm not winning this thing. And um, it gets quite blurry. I don't know how my mother is my mother again. Like she became a mother at 17 and like, I just, I still am in awe of how she took care of me and how my family took care of me and the way they set up the structure and the trust of me being able to tell the truth, I think is the one thing that kept me alive. that even if I told her I wanted to go into the next room right now, and that would be it. I could tell her. And I just kept telling her because I, I didn't, I have been through this. I have found somebody I'm trying so hard to figure out a way where I can stop this pain, but also, you know, and, and I would just have these, these moments where I'd be sitting there and she's trying everything, you know, playing Shit's Creek because we always laughed at Shit's Creek and it was like, there was no laughter. And it was the first time in my entire life where I couldn't find the funny. And I just, I felt like a death sentence. I just, I knew, and I would go in the other room and I would, all my eyes out and I'd be like why are you crying at us and like why are you crying right now like it like it's going to be okay and because I feel so guilty that she's 10 feet away and I still don't want to I I can't do this you know and so it just got to this point in that time where luckily I had agreed to what the team was doing what my mom was helping me with and holistically medically like everybody was like the Avengers were like sort of there but not there it was me and my mom but everybody was being zoomed and like you know my my life coach and my mentor like everybody for free was like this kid is going to live you know and so beautiful to look back and again I probably wouldn't think that it was amazing I just remember it got to this moment where you know things were all right and it was the first time my mom left me alone really um and she just went to the grocery store or something um, and she left and I just remember kind of sitting there and, and being like, okay, you know, here we go kind of thing. And I went into my mom's room and I just like, I, my knees buckled. And I remember just kind of being on the end of my mom's bed, like holding it sort of like not on it, but holding the end of it. And I don't know why I, I've talked to God three times or the universe or the powers above in this whole thing, you know, and, um, I just said, I promise if you, if you get me through this, I will go back for the others. I promise, like, just get me through this and I will go back for the others. And it is the weirdest thing in my memory and my life and everything. I go into an intense fog in my memory. I, I 
sort of died that day. I don't, it all goes dark and um, the door opens and it all comes out the other way. And I end up getting the help I need thanks to the kindness of others. I heal, I fall in love and get hurt and all the things again. And I go on to start the first men's mental health startup and COVID. And, you know, the funny part is when it was funny again was, you know, it all ended and I went, let's go. And they said, we're shutting down. So I had done like my two and a half years <laughs> and I said, all right, like, come on world. And they were like, Ready. but it, it created this, this opportunity where entertainment was shut down. And so I, I could really get all my, my service out. And so that was where I was a co-founder of a men's mental health app at the time, um, which has since transitioned, and then also writing my memoir. And then out of my memoir process, I started to write this book, First Year of Grief Club, a gift from a friend who gets it. And, and I wanted to just show up in the world as one of the guys that's just trying to stretch the everyday experience. I'm not a coach. I'm not a doctor. I'm not sitting on a rock telling you how grief is or what grief is. Uh, I'm just trying to maybe help you realize through some experimenting on a week-to-week basis for a year that it's not something you fix it's something you honor and every time it comes up you honor it and it sounds exhausting and it sounds devastating but eventually it becomes a habit you know and it's and there's beautiful self-talk that gets to go with that and and it was sort of I thought maybe my entrance into the grief world and maybe I would become that guy, but it's starting to feel a lot more like this is my gift back. Mm-hmm. I'm going to laugh and create and live and, you know, do the damn thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, as you imagined, it takes a while, but, uh, you know, we got through those processes and um, this book, I call it my book, baby. It, you know, it's funny because like technically I, I wrote it all out in a weekend, you know, like I was in London and I was reined in and I didn't know anybody. I couldn't use any of the vices, any of the distractions. And it was it was much like what giving birth sounds like to me, where like it was like my water broke. And then just for, you know, three days, I was like, OK, what? how would you carry someone through a year? Like, what would you really do? And the skeleton was created. And but it was that baby was in me for 13 years you know you know it's like a quick quick delivery but like a long long pregnancy of using that medicine (laughs) the gestation of this particular baby was incredibly long what I'm thinking about Addison when you when you were saying look you know I'm not a grief coach and I'm not a clinician and I'm not a the thing that you offer us which I think is um, just incredible is the insight and the space to, to talk about someone who understands the inside of suicidality as part of a grief process, right? That there, you know, you've had experience with grief, you were a sibling and the sibling often doesn't even get talked about in grief. So when you're talking to people about sibling grief, one of the one of the hallmarks of what they say is like, nobody asked me, nobody talked to me. Everybody was thinking about my mom. Everybody was thinking about my grandmother. So there's like minimization in that experience. Then you're a survivor of suicide. Nobody wants to talk about suicide either. They do not want to know about that. They certainly don't want to hear about the experience of it. And, and I just want to say this to you because I spent 
when my mom died, she died in her sleep. And my instinct, which was very strong, and I would do it again, was to go and pray over her body because she was very Catholic. Mm-hmm. But what what those mine were mine was some hours. Um, absolutely was the root of PTSD, the images and the thoughts that I had while sitting with my mom's dead body. I would I would go and do it again, even if someone said to me, This is gonna make you sick, I'd still do it. But I talk a lot about what those images were and what those thoughts were so that people know what PTSD looks like inside your system. Because I knew it theoretically, I had sat with so many people treated PTSD. And then I was in it and I was like, oh my God, this is what it feels like. Mm. It feels like this. And then, it, you know, it was like relentless. It, it, it just, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. And I was like, people have to live with this. My clients are living with this. And I just knew I understood from the inside, you know, mm-hmm. I have all the theory and all the experience, but I was like, actually, there's more to say about how bad this can be and, and why things like movement are really important. And I think part of what you're offering us is that with suicidality, right? Which is like people walk around and they're like, I just could never. And I, I have no idea what that's like. Mm-hmm. And first of all, okay, maybe that, maybe that will be true for your whole life, or maybe that's just true for now because, you know, not everybody have, wants to have a baby either. And mm-hmm. then they wake up one day and they're like, I want to have a baby. So there are lots of urges and things that happen in our human experience that come to us in a surprising way. And I think that not, not trying to know, you know, is the biggest part of honoring. It's removing the belief that there can be a result or a knowing or a fix, you know, because that's a perfect example. Any string of events can happen to any of us at any point that create the perfect, you know, design for a a deep depression or a slip or it is and and we don't know what three things will happen we don't know that we we're not going to find out and this is also why like i'm very passionate about gun laws because we don't know in next week that i'm not going to get broken up with lose my job and someone's going to reveal something about me that changes everything about one of my grief processes or the trauma i've been through or there's no knowing right so it's it's that continually signing up to not know that's right you know, it's like, I don't know. And, and it sounds too easy, but there is eventually a beauty. Yes. You know, where you go, it's the not knowing. It's, it's, it's a, it's the, it's the humanity of being humbled by thinking, you know, anything because, because, and I write about this in my memoir, but like, I don't think I was consciously trying to inoculate myself from traumatic loss by becoming a trauma therapist, but boy, was I really interested in all the ways that you could make sure that you had a good life after, you know, a tragedy in childhood, which is what we experienced. So the hubris of being the person who had multiple degrees, all the neuroscience, all the understand, all the experience to be sitting now and experiencing my own PTSD and knowing like, oh, this is what's happening to you. That if there was a person out there that shouldn't have felt it or been able to outsmart it, it was a hundred percent me. And I really do feel like the gift on the other side of that. I don't, I don't think I'm a, I have such a wide breadth of experience with people that I'm not sure that people would be like, Megan is super judgmental. I think, I think I have a really wide lens of like, look, humanity is really, really hard. Life is really, really hard, but holy crow 
did I have a different sort of like understanding of what people go through Mm. in traumatic loss, right? In, in, in what it means in their system. And really also, I think akin to you, not did I, not only did I intellectually like the idea of giving back, but I really felt like I have something that I think might be important to say to people. And, you know, if you look at the people who are talking about what it's like to feel suicidal in your life, I don't know that they're giving us the real grit of it. I don't know that they're willing to talk about it and how they got there or the resources that, you know, help them so much. And I do want to say, I just want to say this for the listeners that are listening to your story. And it's like, okay, well, the only way Addison survived was through the strength of his community Hmm. and all of his friends and family. And I don't have that. What I, what I want you to know is I also had a very tight knit community of people and I couldn't be around them. Yes. So I could not let them help me. It's not that they didn't. There were a few people that were, but mostly I felt so terrified inside my own body mm-hmm. that I couldn't let anyone see me because I didn't know who I was. And so it was terrifying when people who thought of me as like a therapist or a mom or whoever came up my door. I was like, I'm going to die. If they come in here, I'm going to cease to exist because I'm not, I'm not a sum of my parts anymore. So my road was not your road. Even though there were people around, it felt to me like there was nobody around. And I really had to reach out to, um, I really had to lean on, on the experience of some clinicians kind of solely and trust them solely and hand over the keys to my entire life to my husband, which was fucking terrifying because I kind of ran all the bits and pieces. You know, I was the, I was the like person who was going to do the shopping for the birthday parties and knew all the names of the kids in the classes. So I just want to say that because I, because I think there are multiple ways forward. And what I often hear on my platform, you know, I say to people, look, our first line of defense when we are really starting to drown is the people around us. And and I immediately get DM saying, I just moved here. I'm not good in relationships. I don't have friends. I don't. And so what I say to those people is like the doorman at your building, your dry cleaner, the, the head of school at your kid's preschool, a rabbi, it doesn't have to be someone that you know well. It's just, if you can cast out a net that attaches you to other people who will, because they're human, express some caring, or at least just know that feels different than being in it by yourself. It's not the same as saying I had the tightest knit of most extraordinary people, because what a lot of grievers actually end up feeling is people did not show up, didn't get on the bus. And there's so much pain in that. So I just want to say that out loud that you have there's a lot that's extraordinary in your story, but your your network, it almost feels like, thank God they were there because life knew what it had in store for. And I don't I do think it's really important. I'm so glad you said this because this is this is part of like as you know, when you're writing a memoir, you mine out the details and when you tell things over, especially when they're traumatic. One thing that is so important for people to understand is in that suicidality part much like you, no one had access to me. I was not, I was not even myself to have access to. 
my mother, like your husband, was my babysitter. And it was doctors and calls. But before I grabbed the end of the bed and I made that deal, I totally forgot until you said this. I called the suicide helpline for the first time. And I I never thought I would need to do that because of everything you just said, because I have all the people on the bus. People. But I called them. And for anyone who's even feeling a little bit like they're unsure in that moment, what they walked me through, I thought I was definitely five out of five leaving this earth in the next 10 minutes. And by the end of the conversation, I had this understanding and this groundedness that I was actually on their scale of one out of five. And there was a whole lot there that, that I could do and I could, you know, and so I say it went dark, you know, and then opened back up, but that was a huge part of it. And I, I cannot tell you how hard it was for me to dial that number, but I was alone for the first time. And it was my last, you know, how can I not do this to my mother kind of moment, but it's so important that you bring that up because it's, it's so true. And, and unfortunately with suicide alley at that point, it was the clinicians. It was a team of people. And when I said team, I meant medical That's right. point, yeah. everyone stepped in and unfortunately everyone on the bus, there's, there's nothing you can do. And I know that better than anybody. Cause you know, I had those years with my dad going, well, didn't he think of us? And that if nothing else that day showed me that in that moment, no, there's yeah. no connection to anything because that's the only recipe that could lead yeah. to being able to depart. You know, like that my, there was this weird sort of, my mother wasn't my mother. It was sort of like, if I could just disconnect there, it was the last disconnect, you know? And so I just think that's so important that I don't ever want to like, as much as like, I, I always want to praise the people that surrounded me because this process has been daunting and they have been there. But to say that they were able as pedestrians through the societality part of it, absolutely not. You know, like I said, the Avengers of medicine and spirituality and everything had to be called in and showed up and, you know, and it was Zooms. And and like I said, the first time I considered medication, which was a very hard no for me for a long time. And, and, you know, it all worked together, but it was, you know, having to really bring in the pros and ultimately being willing, like you're saying, to talk to that stranger on that phone and have that volunteer, you know, talk me through it was what, what sort of the last thing I remember before making the deal and opening back. So I just, I love that you brought that up and I love that it gave me the chance to just really make sure I thank you. Yeah. And everything I say in my thought leadership is all around grief. Um, suicidality of course is a totally different spectrum where you know having a friend who gets it might be nice but it's also it's it's not in what I believe the peer support level but I don't think people talk very much about becoming suicidal and grief which is so the ones who get I think a lot of the people who get as close to that fog that I got unfortunately wouldn't be here to tell us that's right you know, it's, it's a very odd little disconnect there. And, and, um, you know, I think it's a matter of timing and interruptions and having resources and support. And there's, I always am quoted as saying, you know, magic exists because, you know, one little detail and, you know, it might've gotten too dark. So it is just this, this wonderful thing of never being afraid to really, truly check in with yourself and 
on that check-in to take action to ask for help. And part of part of why I think it's so important to have these podcasts and to tell the truth and tell these stories is because somebody out there is finding your story the most relatable story that they've ever heard. And somebody else is saying, this guy sounds like a nice guy, but his story is nothing like mine. Mm-hmm. And I've done that with books, right? I'm sure you have too, where I start to read them and I'm like, oh, okay, this is relatable. And then something happens and I'm like, fuck you, you're not telling me my story anymore. It's partly why it's important to tell your own story. Not everybody has to write a memoir, but to be able to say, this is what happened to me and then be able to communicate that to anyone that you care about. And so, you know, one thing that happens, sometimes I hear mothers who've lost partners or parents, they'll say, my kids kept me going. Mm. And I say, that's one way to keep going because my kids did not keep me going. I could not parent and I resented them. And I was afraid of them. And so for probably a year when I would hear stories and people are like, I found meaning in my kids or like I, you know, I went out into my garden and I just wanted to make my hydrangeas grow. I was like, yeah, I didn't care about anyone or anything because I was not a complete human soul on my own. Mm -hmm. So I remember the moments where I looked at my children and was like, you'd be fine with a different mom, you'd be fine. Mm. She'd be better. And I wasn't actively suicidal. I don't think I had the enough um, energy to invenerate that idea, Mm. but it, but more, I was checking out of all my roles. I'm not going to be a sister. I'm not going to be a daughter. I'm not going to, I mean, I'm not, you know, my parents have died. I'm not gonna. And my way forward was to lean on my clinical background. To be like, I know what this is. I know that it can be treated. I know that there are people I know that will help me treat it. Those were the phone calls that Mm -hmm. I made. And so when I talk to people who are grieving, that's generally what I hear is there's nobody to call. No one can help me. And I say, I know, let's drink some water and take a walk. Yeah. Let's drink some water and take a walk. And I think that's part of what you're, and I'll stay on the phone with you, but let's, let's drink some water and take a walk. Mm-hmm. Because what we know is that hopelessness and helplessness generally can pass. It doesn't mean you're not going to meet it around the corner two seconds later. Mm-hmm. But I think particularly with suicidality, that's what folks come to tell us is somehow if they live through this moment, the next moment may be more livable. Yeah. Um, and ask and just any safe space, honestly, we now know this in my family because of the pattern. And again, I'm very fortunate that I have like this like evil twin sister that I like can read my mind anyway. So I may as well just tell her, but it's really set up that way. And this happened quite recently. And so also for anyone listening and going, well, that's nice, Addison. Like you came out of it and wrote a book and whatever. No, no, no. I The depth and the contrast and the fear that that could return all oh, yeah. part of my daily life. You know, I, I am so careful in the way I try to live fully, but also I have to be so aware, you know, of, of everything and how it might affect me. But one thing that I will say is, even if it's on a hotline, if you're paying someone, like you're saying, if it's your boss, if you can find the space to say the things you feel you can't tell anyone right now, and I mean like the worst, you know, I, my sister and I now know that when I have to do that, which happens probably, it's like a, you know, an annual, you know, meeting where I'm like, oh no, these are my greatest, darkest fears that I feel are the seeds of an eventual suicide, you know? 
and I say them and I bawl my eyes out and I feel so guilty that I'm telling my sister that this is how I truly feel. But there's something about that process that immediately, like I sleep and then yeah. the next day it is right. like, oh, okay, oh, buddy, okay, buddy. You know, right. you have distance, you get it out of your system. You know, a lot of what we talk about with, um, you know, I ask grievers about like, the mental math that they do, like, who do they hate? You know, they love them, but they hate them. They're going to their, you know, wife's 30th birthday party, but your wife didn't live to see 30. So don't tell me who those people are. And then I say, and whose death do you dress rehearse? And, and, and how do you dress rehearse? And that, you know, that's, I'm sure you do this and I do it. And Addison's laughing right now. You guys can't see it, but this is a thing that people who have been through dramatic loss, we do it. We do it in the dark of night. Sometimes we're crying. Sometimes it's when we're listening to old voicemails. Sometimes it's just a random Tuesday and it flashes in our head, but we're like, oh, well, I mean, if my youngest side son died, then I'd have to go back into treatment. I couldn't survive that one. That would be the worst. Or imagine if they were all in a car and they all died together. I mean, yeah. a I like to, to kind of echo back to myself and say, oh, that's some good screenwriting, Addie. Yeah, exactly. exactly. You yeah. have to manage those thoughts. You exactly. can't let them run free. And also I can be really honest. I do just want to say, as we begin to close, like it's taken years, but we mentioned earlier, my brain was still forming during all of that. And if you look at it from an outside perspective, what's happening here, it's almost like being famous young, where whenever something unimaginable and bad happens, everyone surrounds Addie. Addie has everybody's attention, you know? So it's like this thing where it also can be incredibly difficult to start to navigate where I'm at in my life, normal. Yeah. Not having these like no problems. catastrophes and coming out. And, and so I do notice, and I lovingly notice my mind creating those things. And I'm like, wow, you're quite the screenwriter. Like I say, it's like a joke. <laughs> oh, love but, that. But being okay and honest, even within yourself about that, where it's like, am I craving a little bit of, you know, drama for lack of a better word, so that people show up because people only show yeah. up when bad things happen. And how can I communicate and teach people to treat me that I want to, I want them to show up in the, in the media yeah. times, because that's what my life's going to be now. And, and that's where I'm going to live. And, and so I, I hate to put any responsibility on grievers. I really do, because it's like, I have to do more. Like, yeah. I mean, if you're but, in, but the, that is the truth you do. Then you're in that and you keep like, you know, I wrote out my vices. I, I was a master of them overachieving, whatever it is like sure. to point where I went, okay, I'm really ready to look at this. And what kind of life do I really want to have here? And it's taken so long, but it's just, if you're willing, again, that that check-in goes deeper and deeper. It starts with a one word check-in about how you're feeling emotionally. And it can get to a point where you're going, yeah, I think I'm creating a little bit of something here because I want to feel connected. And it's like, here's another way to feel connected without needing anything negative, you know, to happen. And oh. And if I, if I don't care anymore, I'll, I'll be the one guy that's like, yeah, that's perfectly normal. And it happens less and less, the more you just acknowledge it and don't have shame around it that, you know, in some ways it's, it's taught that only when it's the worst, only when there's a body still not in the ground, will you be supported through this? Will you be hugged? Will you be taken care of? Will you be fed? But the second 
unless there's a fresh body, that level of support or that level of everyone understanding that you can't navigate the world as is right now, feels like it disappears. Yeah. So we get to, to let people know that it still feels like it did when you came to that funeral that day for me, you know, and it's not easy and it's something, but, but just, just being honest and looking at, at in your check-ins with, you know, where, how do I really want to navigate this? Like really, really. And it's just like this never ending onion that nobody ever wants to be handed. No one wants to be given an onion for dinner. No, it's pretty gross. That's what we're eating kids. And, you know, like I, luckily my, you know, my biggest tool is my humor that I, you know, I'm able at these moments to go, okay, but what's kind of funny about this? And that right. opens up dark and twisted human about this, you know, and, and how, how really normal is this, you know, very normal, you know, and. You and- are the most generous in telling us the truth of this in, in, you know, pulling out the narrative of what is actually your story, because, you know, it's, it's incredibly hard to tell, I'm sure, but it's, it's hard to hear. It's so heavy and your humor and, you know, your smiling and your gift and your survival and resilience is so important for people to hear because it, you know, grief, especially in those early days does not feel hopeful. It, it feels you know, 97% like it's going to be worse than for the rest of your life. And I think part of what you've offered us today is like, yep, you know what? It is exactly always that bad. And then also not always that bad forever. If people want to know more about your work, about your book, about, you know, how do they do that? How, how should they find you? Yeah, um, um, mygriefclub.com kind of leads you to everything or my name, Addison Brazil. Brazil, like the country spelled with an S as my dad always said. Um, and on Instagram, I'm at Addison Brazil and at Share My Grief Club is where all the grief stuff is. Um, I, I, I welcome everybody to both sides of my life, but the grief is less on the personal side of things as I, you know, honor my journey more and more. Um, but I'm, I still do speaking engagements and things like this. And of course, anything I can to, to continue to be a friend who gets it. Cause you know, I'm in the club for life. <laughs> we mentioned your podcast. How do they find that? Thank you so much. <laughs> Don't forget. Grief Club, the podcast with Addison Brazil. And what that actually is, is a deeper dive off all the concepts that I have in the book. So I kind of wrangled in the people that, like I said, my Avengers. So if you're feeling like you don't have Avengers, well, guess what? I've I've gone back to them and said, you said if I made it through, you would help me help the others. And so they do every week. They come on and they help me. And you're one of those people now. And the community just keeps growing. And it's just... um, it's really cool. It, it, it is really cool. And I'm grateful that I, I get to, to be a part of it and also not, not make it my whole life. I'm, I'm so excited for this next chapter where yeah. it doesn't yeah. decide every, every little bit of what I do, you know, and how I show I love up. It. Thank you so much for all your time being here with us today and your sharing. We'll put all of that information in the show notes for anybody that's looking for it. Um, thank you, Addison. I just adore you. This was such a great, a great time together today. Thank you.